to welcome you into Crossroads. If you're uh, here with us uh, in, in person, if you're joining us online, we're uh, glad that you're here today. Uh, many of you uh, were asking me on the way uh, in today, you, you saw the uh, Facebook post, you were asking me how our uh, trip went. We just got back from Florida a few days ago, and I'll just say this, I've decided I no longer like spray-on sunscreen. I've got random red spots all over from where I didn't get covered quite as well as I thought I did, but it was a good time to get away and, and unplug for a few days, and, and then we're excited to be back uh, here with you guys um, today. We have been in a series the last few weeks called So Many Questions. It's a, a series where we're unpacking some of the big difficult questions in, in our world that can either be roadblocks to somebody's faith or questions that can derail somebody's faith. And uh, over the last five weeks, we've looked at a few questions like, uh, how can I know God is real? Or does science contradict faith? Or uh, how can a loving God allow pain and suffering in the world? Or how can I still trust the Bible? Or how do I know I can still trust the Bible? Last week, Brad asked a question about why are there so many different religions? Uh, if you've missed any of these questions, I would encourage you to get online and you can watch any of those on our, our website or our YouTube or Facebook pages. Uh, just to kind of see how we've unpacked these. Today, before we jump into this question today, it's kind of a weird question. Before we jump into this, I want to just kind of uh, say this. this. This may sound obvious to some of you. It may seem like a well-duh kind of statement to some of you, but uh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. I uh, am one who grew up in the church, and, and uh, it's really shaped who I am and, and led me to who I am today. And you may be looking at this going, well, yeah, you're a, you're a pastor. You get up and preach on a regular basis. We certainly hope that's the case with you, that that's, that's the case. Uh, but just understand this. As a Christian... It doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that I have everything figured out. It, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm perfect. I'm far from it. It doesn't mean anything more than just I've given my life to Jesus. It, it means that I've started to understand a little bit more about this conversation Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was crucified. It's a very famous conversation found in John chapter 14 when he's telling them he's going to go away and prepare a place for them and then come back to get them. And then his, his disciple Thomas says to him in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And that's a question I think so many of us maybe have either asked Jesus at times, whether you're a Christian or not. We don't know where you're going. How, how do we know how we're supposed to get there? And Jesus very famously answers him with one of the most famous lines in the Bible. He answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So to, to stand here today, to call myself a Christian, to call myself a follower of Jesus, somebody who believes in Jesus, if nothing else, it means I at least understand what Jesus is saying here, that it's through him that we find our way to God. Today's question is a bit different. It, it, it's it's kind of complex, but it's this, if I didn't know Jesus, how would my life be different? And I've just got to be fully transparent with you. I don't know how to really answer this because I, I've grown up in the church. In fact, I'm what you call a Buick. I'm a brought up in church kid. It's, it's all I've known. Some of you are just getting this back here. I, <clears throat> eight o'clock, uh, one of the guys told me, here he goes, it took me about five minutes and then I wrote it down. That, that was a good one. <laughs> 
But Jesus is all I've known. I grew up in a church where, like so many of you, if you grew up in church, I didn't just go every week. We went multiple times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday evening. We had to go back Wednesday night because Sunday had worn off already. Like we were that rough, you know. It's like my, my parents really, I guess I really needed the help, you know, going that many times a week. But that was church for us. And even from an early age, I was involved. I remember being about... 10 years old, fourth grade or so, I was running the sound booth in our, our kids' ministry. Like, I just always wanted to be a part of this. Some of you have seen my oldest daughter out here with the, with the welcome team at 915. Uh, that's, that's what I was. I wanted to be serving. I wanted to be a part of it. I've always just had this desire to be a part of the church. As soon as I was old enough to understand kind of what it meant, I, I made it official, and I accepted Jesus into my heart and was, was baptized and that was my life. I've grown up knowing Jesus. And so it's difficult on one aspect to answer this question. But on the other aspect, because this is a question in this series that I looked at this and thought, man, I have no idea where I'm taking this this, this time. Usually, you know, Brad or, or me or anybody that preaches, we have an idea where we're taking a sermon when we come up with it. This one, I, I sat there for a while just staring at a blank piece of paper going, I don't know where I'm going with this. And then I started to kind of write some things out. If I didn't know Jesus, how would my life be different? That list got extremely long very fast. And I thought, okay, well, I can't preach all of those. It's like once I stop to think about it, yeah, there's a lot of things that would be different. So what I want to do kind of for the sake of time, for the sake of simplicity today, is just answer this with one quick answer and then kind of break that answer open a little bit. If I didn't know Jesus, how would my life be different? Simple. I would insist on living my life my way. That's, that's kind of where I'm going to go with this, and I'm going to step back and look at this from a couple of different perspectives today. But if I didn't know Jesus, I would insist on living my life my way. I would determine who is valuable. I would determine what's true and what's not true. I would make the rules. I would set that. That would be up to me. And maybe somebody else determines those for me, but it's up to me to accept those and follow along with those. Ultimately, it would be my life my way. One of the biggest criticisms of the Christian faith is that it's too restrictive, that we have too many rules, and that, that there's a criticism that there are inconsistencies in those rules because we pull things out of context from Scripture sometimes. And yes, Christianity has too many rules unless you're talking to somebody, maybe say from the Middle East, somebody maybe from an Islamic background, and suddenly we don't have enough rules. We're not restrictive enough for somebody from one of those lines of faith. Those rules, though, often I think we make them more convoluted and complex than they really are. It's kind of like the game of golf. If you're a golfer, maybe you understand this. According to the USGA, the United States Golf Association, the governing body for golf in this country, there are 24 official rules. Now, you can actually get a rule book that's got a lot in it, but there are 24 official rules. There are over 150 variations to those rules. And golf is funny because, again, you, you get up. Let's just say I get up and I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit my drive, and I, I swing and I, I hit my drive, okay? And this doesn't ever happen, just so you know, but let's say it slices way off to the right, <laughs> you know, and it goes across a fence into somebody's backyard or it lands in the pond. Again, that's never happened to me, but let's just say it did for the sake of this, this illustration here. If it does that, that's out of bounds, that's a stroke penalty. And depending on the hole, I have given, uh, I, I, one of two things is going to happen. I either have to re-hit the shot, 
And now that's my third shot because I hit it once, it went out of bounds, that was my second penalty stroke, then I'm hitting it again, or I have to drop it from uh, a designated location where it last crossed the boundary to go out of bounds, and then that's going to be my third shot, unless I hit it and it goes in the fairway, or it goes in the rough, then I hit it as it lies, unless the ball happens to land on something that I can't hit it off of. Then I get a, what's called a relief drop, and I drop it a reasonable distance away from there, and now that's my second shot, and I get to do that again. Simple, right? <laughs> or like maybe I'm in a sand trap. That's not a penalty to be in the sand trap. Unless my club touches the sand before I hit the ball, then I've, I've grounded my club. It's an extra stroke penalty. And, and all these penalties can pile up unless I look at the person I'm playing with and I ask him that question that, that golfers tend to ask from time to time. Can I have a mulligan? If you don't know what a mulligan is in golf, a mulligan is where basically you get a redo. So that ball that I may or may not have just hit into the pond over there suddenly never existed. That shot doesn't count. The penalty doesn't exist. I'm getting to, to start over and hit my drive again, and that's my first shot all over again. See, the, the mulligan's not an official rule in golf. It's kind of a gentleman's agreement, and Part of the gentleman's agreement is that whoever pays for the round of golf gets to determine who gets the mulligans and when. File that away. We're going to come back to that. I talk shockingly a lot about golf today. Just be ready for it. So, Actually, I don't. See, our faith does indeed come with rules and restrictions. That's true. It does. It comes with this, and the non-believer might think that those rules and those restrictions are too much to deal with. They're too much to cope with. But it's worth stepping back and looking at what those boundaries and guardrails actually mean and what they actually do in our lives. And to kind of set this up, let me just ask you a question, a kind of a theoretical question here. Do you think that absolute truth is the enemy of freedom? Okay, think about that. Is absolute truth the enemy of freedom? We talked about this several weeks back. We mentioned how the majority of Americans today do not believe in an absolute truth. They do not believe that there's absolute right or wrong, that truth can be relative, that you can change what you, your version of truth is. Yet those same people, when asked in the same survey, all answered that two plus two equals four. That was, there, there was no uh, misunderstanding that particular question. See, I think we view limits and we view these restrictions and boundaries as like a, 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 the inability to have fun, like, like they limit our ability to do whatever it is that we want. And when that's the case, we fail to understand what the purpose of guardrails and boundaries actually are. Guardrails don't exist to restrict us. They exist to protect us. They exist to keep us safe. Uh, they make us feel safer when we're driving over a bridge. And we were just in Florida. The bridges that go out to the beaches are those high bridges that ships can get under. And I'm one of these, even just driving over a bridge over the river, sometimes I grip the steering wheel just a little tighter. It just kind of makes me a little bit uneasy at times. And if those guardrails weren't there, I probably wouldn't drive on that bridge at all. But I never drive across a bridge thinking, man, these guardrails, these aren't fun. No, I'm grateful they're there because if I happen to lose focus for a minute, or if I happen to drift, or God forbid something happened to me while I'm driving, they're going to keep me from, at least in theory, going off the side of there. Or if you're driving around a sharp curve and it's a steep incline on the other side, they protect you. We give our kids coloring sheets with lines on them, not to restrict their artistic abilities, 
but to help them learn what they need to do to perfect their artistic abilities, to show them what the picture looks like. Guardrails and boundaries can actually be good things. But here's the deal. I think deep down, if we're very honest with ourselves, we don't mind having guardrails. We just want to be the ones to establish where they are. We want to be the ones to set them. Kevin Meyer said it like this, we say that we are anti-rules, but the reality is we don't want to get rid of the rules, we just want to be the ones to make them. It seems like that applies pretty much across the spectrum today. We want our rules, but then we want everybody else to follow our rules too. It's kind of like when you go to eat. I think we've gotten spoiled by all the different restaurants that are out there. When we see something on the menu and you might ask them, I want this, but instead of onions, can I have peppers instead? Or, hey, can you leave the peanuts off that? Or, hey, can I get green beans instead of potatoes? And people are typically happy to oblige that. They give us what we want. It's going back to the old Burger King slogan, have it your way, right? That's what we want in life. What we fail to understand when it comes to rules and boundaries is that rules and discipline in life are actually liberating. They actually will set us free, and they allow us to experience ultimate freedom in life. And that seems like an oxymoron for so many of us. That seems like that, well, that doesn't make sense. How can having more boundaries and more guidelines be freeing? See, here's the, the, the reality with this. There's a misconception that freedom means we don't have any rules. Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions, though. Freedom is getting to pick the right ones for us. We get to choose which ones we want to follow. We get to choose which ones we want to adhere to. I think you could say it better like this. If we want to grow in any area, it requires discipline. I mean, just think about this for a second. If you want to grow intellectually, what does that require of you? It requires study. You have to be the one to take the time to read or to listen to lectures or to watch lectures. It's up to you to study. You want to grow physically. If I wanted to gain muscle mass, I have to dedicate life to going to the gym. That's not just going to happen on its own. Trust me, I've tried. It requires the dedication. Or if I want to improve my golf game or if you want to improve any activity that you do, you have to dedicate time to doing that. I need to go to the driving range at least once or twice a week, if not more. I can't just roll out there once a year and expect to be good. If you want to grow in your job vocationally, it requires you to train, requires you to go to maybe a conference or a seminar where you can learn from experts who have been in the field longer than you. So let me just ask you a question. When it comes to our spiritual life, if growing in every other area requires dedication, discipline, and boundaries, why would our spiritual life be any different? How can our spiritual life be any different? Yet we often want to shed any boundaries that might hold us down. So what I want to do today is look at this idea of living life my way. And I'm going to look at it from the two opposite perspectives to kind of maybe break down why I believe living life God's way is ultimately the right way to go. Living life for God, giving up my my so-called freedoms actually will be more freeing in the end. Here's the first thing. I'm going to talk about things that maybe I would believe about Jesus if I didn't know Jesus. And here's the first one. I'd believe this, that God's objective isn't what's best for me. I've heard this from a lot of people who have 
left the church over the course of time. That they've been taught for so long, well, just follow God's will for your life. Just listen to God's will and follow that. And they never could either quite figure that out or they didn't like it. And now they're like, well, I, I just get to decide what I want to do. And we teach verses over and over that help people to try and understand this. And there's a very famous verse that probably many of you have highlighted in your Bible. We find in Jeremiah chapter 29, where it says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And it's a beautiful verse. Some of you may have this on a piece of decor on your walls at home. I know I got this when I graduated high school. Uh, I was given a picture frame by uh, one of the, kind of one of my second moms. You know, I, my, my mom and two of her very close friends, we just, all of us as kids grew up together. Me, my brother, and the other three boys, we grew up together. And in this picture frame was us when we were, like, I was about 10 years old. And I was the oldest of the five. And then we, it was funny because we recreated that picture just a few days later. But it had that. Talking about how we've grown up and how we've, we've moved on. And that's where we, we do with this verse a lot. And, and we, we look at this. God has great plans for you. And that's true, he does. But it's also worth stepping back and remembering why these words were given to Jeremiah by the Lord. Because if you read all of Jeremiah 29, you learn Israel is in captivity. And in fact, they've been exiled to Babylon. They've been moved from their home. Try to imagine this if you would. You're moved from your home to a country, to a nation where you don't know the culture, you don't know the people, you don't speak the language, and you're told you can't worship your God, and you're lost, you're cut off from all communication. This is, you know, pre-internet era. And God speaks to you saying, no, listen, I know you think you have no hope, and you think you have no future, but I still have plans for you. And they're plans to deliver you, plans to bring you goodness. See, too often I think the skeptic looks at the Christian life and they see those rules and they see those boundaries and they think, well, God just wants me to give up everything. God wants me to, to give him everything that I have and get nothing in return. And it's true, God demands everything from us. God tells us to take up our crosses and to follow him. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have what's best in store for us at the end of it. I think about uh, good coaches. If you follow sports, I'm a big college football fan, and I don't like Alabama, but I admire Nick Saban. I admire him as a coach. And the reason I admire him as a coach is simple. He produces on a regular basis. He gets the cream of the crop, the top high school students all the time. And yet he brings these students in, and, and, and these these. Players could start at any other school across the country. They're willing to sit and wait their turn at Alabama. It's like the one school that's immune to transfer players. And you watch this. You watch a, a, an NFL game, whether it's a Chiefs game or any other game on TV. When they say what school they're from, you're going to find multiple starters on every team from Alabama. They, they see that. And his famous line is, trust the process. Now, again, am I saying he's a perfect figure? No. But he's got these kids to buy in. I'm going to be tough on you. I'm going to demand everything from you. But here's what's going to come out of the end of this. God demands everything from us. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have what's best in store for us. And too often, I think, we think we can take care of that on our own. We can deliver ourselves on our own. Or we can, we can just make our own plans and we can get there. I told the 8 o'clock service this. I don't know that I could sit here and make a list, a comprehensive list of all the times that I have relied on God, relied on Jesus to 
deliver for me and how that's turned out because I'm sure many of those have happened and I didn't even realize it. But I can make a list of things that crashed and burned because I didn't include God in them. I can make a list of uh, different opportunities I have, have tried to pursue or different uh, friendships I have tried to foster that I didn't put him in the, in, at, the, at the beginning of. And they crashed and they burned. So trust in him. His objective is what's best for you. Here's the second thing I would believe about God if I didn't follow Jesus. I'd believe that God is too controlling in my life. That God's just this cosmic killjoy. That all he wants is, is my just blind, drone-like obedience and nothing else. And I know there's a phrase that gets thrown around in churches sometimes. And it's a phrase we probably, we probably argue about and we don't need to. But you probably heard it, and in fact, I'm pretty sure I've preached it before, but the phrase that God doesn't care about your happiness, he cares about your holiness. He doesn't want you to be happy, he wants you to be holy. There's some truth to that. But ask this, this question, if God didn't want you to be happy, why did he give you the emotion of happiness? Why did he allow us to experience joy? Why did he allow us to experience love like he loves I think God does care about our happiness, not at the expense of our holiness. He calls us to righteousness, yes. He calls us to obedience, yes. But it's not a mindless thought that we have to do. We're not just robots. He gave us all the emotions that he wanted to give us. That's why I think Psalm 126 says it like this, Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. I love getting to see this on a regular basis when we come in here and, and we see just the fellowship of, of you all coming in and maybe you haven't seen each other since last Sunday or maybe like it's summertime, you've been on vacation and, and you haven't seen each other in a couple of weeks and there's smiles and there's laughter. I think that brings warmth to God's heart. I don't think he'd want to see us walk in there and go, Ron, Rex, he wants us to smile, enjoy one another. There's something to that. God does care about your holiness, or, but he cares about your happiness too. He wants us to experience that joy. He's not just this buzzkill. Like, I, I was thinking about this. As, I've reached that stage, I think, of fatherhood, where sometimes I forget my kids are kids. You know, if dads, if you've been there, I'm open to advice on this, okay? Like, there's times my kids are just having fun. And what is it that I normally tell them? Could you be quieter? Could you go upstairs? Can you go outside? Well, then they go outside, and they get dirty. I'm like, you better clean that off before you get in the house. I don't want to mop again. <laughs> or hose off and then go to the garage and drip dry and then clean up your mess in the garage before you come in the house. I forget those times when I was a kid, and I got muddy, and I'm like, Dad, it'll wash. It's fine. We experience joy in life, and that's a good thing. Here's my number three thought. If I didn't believe or didn't follow Jesus, what would I believe about Jesus? I would probably believe that God doesn't know my life as well as I do. I've heard this from a few different people. Well, I know myself. I know who I am. And, you know, if you don't believe in God, then I suppose maybe there's some validity to that. But I'll just kind of use this as an example here. Jennifer and I are coming up on 13 years of being married. That's about one-third of my life that we have been together. My, my parents, my mom, my dad, 
I haven't been around them on a daily basis now in probably about seven years, ever since we uh, moved off to Arizona a long time ago. And I talk to them as much as I can, but I'm not with them all the time. And yet my wife, my mom, and my dad, all three at times know me better than I know myself. And if that's the case, people who have been a part of my life for a fraction of my life, how much more does the God of all creation know me? Better than I know myself. Does he understand me better than I understand myself? See, at times we forget we're the creature, not the creator. But we want to make ourselves to become the master of the story. And you do not have to turn very far into the Bible to discover how poorly that ends for us. Take Adam and Eve who were created in the image of God and they were given everything they could possibly want until they decided they wanted more and they wanted to start dictating the rules. They changed what, what God had put up as guardrails. And they were cast out of the garden. Here's the reality of of things, folks, for us. Our problems in life will start to snowball when we start to think and act like we know more than God. They're going to get out of hand. They're going to get away from us. And some of you may have experienced this. When you get yourself caught up in the wrong things, and then you try to cover those, sometimes it can get a lot worse than it was to begin with. It's like the freight train kind of gets away from you and it's going downhill. But here's the truth of the matter when it comes to us and us following God or not. Our decisions in life that we make will either bring us closer to God or closer to Satan. Every decision you make will bring you in one direction. And the further you get closer to God, the more you get closer to God, the less likely that snowball is to get out of control. You may be able to stop it before it gets rolling, but if you're not close to God and that snowball gets rolling, sometimes it's very hard to stop until you crash, until you hit that rock bottom. That's why it says in Proverbs 14, there is a way that appears to be right, but it ends in death. When we are in control of our situation, it's not going to end well for us. It's not going to. We think it will, and it may be going well, but it's not going to end well for you. So lean into God. Lean into him. Trust him. And ask yourself this question. If you're trying to be in control of your own situation and live life your way, ask yourself this question. Do you really want the responsibility of God without the power of God? I know I certainly don't. Not even in just my life, much less the lives of people around me. I don't want that. I don't want that. So let's flip the perspective here. and Let's look at this idea of living life my way and, and ask the other question. Why are some reasons, or what are some reasons that we should live our lives God's way? Well, here's the first one. It's, it's a pretty, pretty simple one. Whoever creates the universe gets to make the rules. Uh, we are, are board game fans in our house, and... One of the things that, that I will do that drives my wife and her side of the family crazy is the first time we play a game, we read the rules. Because when we were first dating, several times I went over to her mom's house, her mom and dad's house, to play a game, and the game was played slightly different every time. And her and her sisters are highly competitive with one another, to the point where there were times we wondered if we should get law enforcement involved. Um, no, I'm kidding. Barely, but I'm kidding. 
Like you've seen that meme on Facebook of the, the card table flipped upside down and, and pieces everywhere, and it says this is how a game of Monopoly typically ends. That's Settlers of Catan at the Bauer House, okay? And so the first few times we played it, I finally said, I don't have a clue what's going on in this game. Like, I, I, think I'm, you know, I think I'm a pretty bright guy. I can catch on. I don't have a clue what we're doing. So before I play this game again, we are reading the rules out loud as a family. And they kind of looked at me and I said, or I'm never playing this game again with you all. So we did. We read the rules together. And I said, because somebody once upon a time created this game and they wanted it to be played a certain way. And if we're going to deviate from those rules, we're at least going to make sure we're all in agreement. This is how it's going to go. See, that works in a board game. But when it comes to real life, despite what the world may tell you, neither you nor me nor any other human in existence in the history of mankind, with one exception, gets to make the rules. None of us are in charge. God is in charge. We like to think that we are. We like to think that we're in charge and we want that responsibility, but let's be perfectly honest with ourselves. If we were fully in charge, if we made our own rules and we pushed those rules and we held ourselves accountable to those rules, our society around us would crash and burn. If you don't believe me, read a history book because it's happened time and time and time again. Century after century, we read about an empire that was built on the word of God, that was founded on the, on the very foundations of God, and it was guided by him until one time or, or somewhere along the line, the people decided they no longer needed this. They could figure it out on their own, and they began to disregard God's word, and it didn't take very long for that empire to crumble. And again, if you don't believe me, just open your eyes and look at what's going on in our world today. It's happening right in front of us. Proverbs 19, it tells us that many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Folks, we can look at this and we can see the world around us and you can have your thoughts on what's going on with our culture or our society not just us, but the broader culture and society today too. But I can promise you one thing, the church will prevail because the church has prevailed time and time again. People will ask me if I'm nervous about the state of the church looking forward into our current American society with everything that's going on and the pressure that we're going to have and, and all these different things that are going to come our way. And let me just be clear and say, I am not, I'm not nervous. And the reason is simple. The church is going to outlast all of this because it already has. It's already outlasted all of these empires. The church may fizzle and, and, and cease to be as, as large here in this nation because this nation's going to turn away from it. So the church will move somewhere else and it'll grow and, and it'll thrive there. It's already doing it. We see China where religion is outlawed. Hundreds of millions of people belong to the church of Jesus. We see the continent of Africa with all sorts of different religious beliefs. The church is thriving there. Hundreds of millions of people are coming to Jesus and following him and belonging to his church. People will ask me if I'm worried or nervous about what's just going on with our country as a whole. What's going on with our nation, with the, the political upheaval and, and all of this that, that we see. I'm not. I mean, do I like what's going on? No, but I'm not nervous about it. Why? Hear me on this. 
we can be proud of where we're from, but you need to understand something, because this is what I believe about myself. I don't consider myself a member of a nation because I'm a citizen of a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that has endured and is currently enduring and will always endure. Because it's not established by we the people, it's established by God Almighty, who is infallible, who is consistent, who is and who always has been and who is uh, yet to come. That, folks, brings me peace. It brings me joy. And it lets me remember that he is the one who created all this. He's the one who's still in charge. Here's my second reason we should live life God's way. Obedience to God's rules will always lead to freedom. That may sound like an oxymoron, that obedience leads to freedom. But you need to understand something. Rebellion never does. Go back to playing sports. If you just cheat and do whatever you want to do in that game, you don't get to play the game. If you're playing basketball and you cheat, you might get fouled out. If you're playing uh, hockey, you might get thrown in the penalty box. If you're playing golf, you might get disqualified. If you're playing board games at our house, we kick you out of the game. (laughs) We don't play with you anymore. Obedience leads to freedom. Rebellion never does. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, the new rebel is a skeptic who will not trust anything. Uh, I'm, I'm firmly convinced that we are so locked into certain mindsets these days that somebody could give you unequivocal proof of something and you wouldn't believe it. Unquestionable, dead on proof and evidence and you wouldn't believe it because that's just how our minds are currently wired. We have become like a slave to this mentality these days. And, and, And here's the thing, you understand this. When you take on debt, you give a part of yourself to that debt, at least until the debt's paid. You have to put up collateral for that. And some of you have gotten into probably financial issues where you've had so much debt that it's just crushing. And this isn't just a a thing for us today. It's not just a problem for us today. Because even in biblical times, in the times of the Old Testament, the writer of Proverbs said the borrower is slave to the lender. Your property to the lender until that's paid off, until that is met. And this isn't just financial debt that we're talking about. It's spiritual and it's emotional debt. You can look around our society today and we have seen anxiety skyrocket in the last few years. We have seen mental health crater in the last few years. These last couple years have been hard on us. They have been very, very difficult for us. And we have seen so many things happen, whether it's uh, the pandemic and, and all the responses to it. The, the, the shutdowns from it or whatever it may have been. We've seen all of the political upheaval that has come up and all the social issues that get thrown into the political upheaval and this pressure that it's like we have to take a stance and, and stand on one side or the other. And we see all of this. And it's just caused us to not even know what to say or to do. Uh, the Gallup organization, you, you've probably heard of it, they do these polls where they take surveys and they just try to get a, a, a beat on the pulse of what's going on. The last few years, they have asked Americans across the spectrum, are you in good mental health, yes or no? And the numbers are sobering. In fact, I'll, I'll show you some of these. They've broken them down, and I've got these from the last uh, three years, but you can kind of see what the last two years have done to us. Uh, here, here's a breakdown by 
gender, age, and race. I don't know how well you can see these, but the, the first column there is 2019, then 2020, and 2021. And that number is the percentage of Americans in that demographic that said, yes, my mental health is good. And you can see it's under half on almost all these. But you can see in that fourth column there, that's the amount of change from 2019 to 2020. And then the last column is the change over the two years. Men, women, didn't really matter. Both about 8 9% drop in good mental health. Age, again, doesn't matter. Millennials, Gen X, boomers, we've all dropped about 9 to 10%. Race, whites or non-whites. So you, can, you can see that. Again, it's pretty consistent across the board. Go to this next one here. You can see your political affiliation. Okay? Again, Republicans in 2020 took a pretty, pretty hard nosedive. But people who called themselves Democrats took one as well too. Household income. This is the one that got me. You look at the bottom line there. People who make $100,000 or more. Three years ago, that was like the healthiest group. Now they've dropped 16%. And as they did these demographics, they looked at all of these things. There was one demographic that was different than the others. Any guesses what it was? Show this one. Regular church attendance. Those who come to church weekly, who are here as much as they can be, was the one group that went up each of the last few years. Those regulars, that's being here once a month, tops. That's what regular church attendance is, is defined as. You see, that's a pretty strong dive, almost as much as seldom and never. Remember a few weeks ago, I had the three chairs up here, and I said there's really no difference in the second chair or the third chair? That's those three chairs right there. Folks, hear me on this. When we stress to you the importance of being here in church every week, it is not so that we can say, hey, man, look how many people we had here today. Our numbers went up. It's not so I can, can say, man, I'm preaching, and, and I've, got, I've got 700 people in my church. It's not because of that. It's not so that we can look good. It's because we believe in it. We believe in this. This is important to us. I've, I've, I've given my life to this call to get up here and, and believe that the church is the bride of Christ and to come up here on a regular basis and preach about that because I want everybody to know that. I want everybody to know who Jesus is and to share the truth of Scripture with him. And I can tell you, I am not an expert on this. Brad's not an expert on this. But we can tell you with all of our hearts that we want you to believe in Jesus and become like who he is. That's what we believe. And like Peter says in his epistle, we don't want anybody to perish. We want everybody to find that, that light of God and repent and turn to him. That's why... Obedience leads to freedom. It always does. Our faith is not a, a matter to laugh at or to play with. Our faith isn't a faith of convenience. Our faith is a faith of restoration and reconciliation, and we cannot get that alone. We get that coming to God and coming together. That's why the writer of Hebrews said it like this in chapter 10. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the day more, or all the more as you see the day approaching. 
So folks, obedience leads to freedom. Here's my third reason why we should live, God this, live our lives God's way. And it's simple. The one who pays the price gets to determine the grace. Go back earlier. Who pays for the round of golf gets to set the rule on mulligans. And I was reassured. Men, we've got a golf outing coming up in another week or so. I was reassured by the one in charge of that. You'll be playing with a bunch of senior citizens. We do mulligans on every hole. Yes. Because even though I never hit the ball in the water, I like to have those mulligans just in case the wind is blowing hard that day, you know. (laughs) Folks, our lives are flawed and they're broken and they're messy. Every one of us. It doesn't matter if you're here today and you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter if you've been here since day one. Our lives are broken and they're flawed and they're messy and there's nothing we can do about that. Nothing we can do to fix that. The book of Romans tells us about our sin and how it is so bad that we're just lost in it and we can't get out of it. And yes, it tells us about what Jesus' work on the cross does and it tells us about our faith and it tells us about the peace we have, but ultimately it tells us we are lost without the grace of Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that's what believing in him and living a life for him ultimately boils down to. If I didn't know Jesus, I wouldn't understand this. But knowing Jesus, I do. Here's the thing you need to understand. Every road will ultimately lead to him. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what you believe, you get to go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. Every road will lead to Jesus. The question is, are you going to know him before you get there? Are you going to surrender to him before you get there? Are you going to live your life his way before you get there? Because here's the bad news of the story. If you don't, then when you get there, it's too late. And this isn't a hellfire and brimstone. This isn't a turn or burn kind of thing. Again, we love you enough to be honest with you and say this. To get your life pointed towards Jesus. To give your life to him. If you don't know what that means, that connection card you have in your your bulletin, just write that on there. That's going to be confidential. I'll be the one that that gets that this week. I just want to have a conversation with you. Or maybe one of our other staff members will have a conversation with you. Because we want you to understand what that means to walk towards Jesus and to follow him. If I didn't know Jesus, how would my life be any different? I don't know. But I know this. If I didn't know him, I'd be searching for answers to a question I didn't even know I was asking. I think when I look at the world today and I see people who are away from Jesus, I see people who are just trying to fill their own life that's what I see. And it's easy to criti- criticize them. It's easy to say, well, they're just, they're out there. No, they're lost. And they don't even know what they're looking for. But here's the good news. Because I know Jesus, I know he has the answers. I don't have to. I don't have to have him. He's got him. That's the good news for me. And that's good news for you too.
He's still there for you. And as long as you're still breathing, you can start living your life for him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful that he establishes a way for us, that he leads us. God, that he has went to the cross to redeem us. God, I pray today if anybody is struggling on that walk or somebody hasn't gotten onto that walk yet, Lord, you would just be with them. God, you would speak to their hearts and open their hearts to be touched by you. You would remind them, God, that you do have plans and those are good plans. They're plans to bring them the life that you laid out for them. You created them on purpose for a purpose. God, I'm so grateful that you are who you are in our lives. I pray this today in your name. Amen. As we step into a time of communion.